0: from bowling green state university and the institute for the study of culture and society this is bg ideas
1: i'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment you're listening to the big ideas podcast a collaboration between the institute for the study of culture and society and the school of media and communication at bowling green state university i'm jolie sheffer professor of english and american culture studies and the director of ICS. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University and its campuses are situated in the Great Black Swamp and the Lower Great Lakes region. This land is the homeland of the Wyandotte, Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Ottawa, and multiple other Indigenous tribal nations present and past who were forcibly removed to and from the area. We recognize these historical and contemporary ties in our efforts towards decolonizing history, and we thank the Indigenous individuals and communities who have been living and working on this land from time immemorial. This season on the Big Ideas Podcast, we're focusing on sustainability and sustainable practices. True sustainability is dependent on equally balanced responses to social, economic, and environmental needs. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Christopher Witolsky, Assistant Teaching Professor of Ethnomusicology at Bowling Green State University. He is the author of two books on music and religion in Morocco and teaches courses on Arab music. His research explores how musicians negotiate their listeners' tastes, global markets, and the aesthetics required for productive ritual. In fall 2021, Chris was an ICS faculty fellow, researching the relationship between sound and identity in Arab-American communities. Thanks for joining me today, Chris. To begin with, could you tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in Arab-American music and its relationship to identity?
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. In terms of what sparked my interest in Arab American music, well, before I moved out to uh, Bowling Green to start in my position here at BGSU, I was living and working in Morocco quite a bit. And so my interests were in Moroccan music. And that's a different story how that comes about. But really, it's this proximity to Toledo and Dearborn that inspired me to want to learn more about these communities because they're nearby, right? And they also feel familiar in certain ways. Growing up in kind a of Polish American and being Polish was very important in my household. The experiences and the way that those identities are celebrated and remembered feels somewhat familiar. But I'm in the very beginning of this work. And so I, I don't want to speak too far to that.
1: How do you define Arab American music? What are the geographic or cultural boundaries for this particular project?
0: I just had a conversation about this two days ago, and it comes up in almost every conversation I have with somebody who's involved in this project because it is an arbitrary but still like a moderately useful distinction. I used the phrase Arab American in part because I wanted this to be a smaller project than it ended up being. It it grew beyond my expectations, and I wanted to sort of bound it in some ways. And so I wanted to focus on Arab American uh, immigrant communities as opposed to something much more complicated and complex. Not to say that, obviously, Arab American communities are themselves extraordinarily multifaceted and diverse in both unsurprising and surprising ways, right? But once you get into like the greater Middle Eastern diaspora, you're talking about people who are coming from even more different contexts and experiences and memories and whatnot. So when I think about Arab American, usually we're talking about populations that come from states where maybe Arabic is the predominant language, right? So in that sense, we're not talking about Iranian Americans. We're not necessarily talking about like Mauritanian Americans, although Moroccan Americans might be a difficult place, right? That's like, where does that sit? This is why these, these boundaries are, they're difficult, but at the same time, they're meaningful for the communities themselves, right? So a lot of the people I talk to, they, they highlight this this line as important because it is something that makes them who they are. But then other people look at this line as something that's meaningless because it separates them from other people with whom they identify. So through the project as a whole, I'm trying to take a backseat in terms of making these distinctions. That makes it more complicated in some ways. But for me, yeah, it, it, musically, you're looking at a tradition of styles and innovations that come out of like Egypt and Syria and places like that. Those become important. But the lines are are fuzzy, right? They're fuzzy at their core.
1: Can you give me an example of, uh, of a moment when Your research collaboration resulted in maybe an expansion or drawing that divide differently than you expected.
0: Within the Arab-American side of things, I think the line that comes up the most frequently is how the idea of being Arab-American does or does not align with people's expectations of who Arab-Americans are, right? And the most present one is religious, the Arab American communities that exist across the United States are old communities. They, You know, they many of them began more than 100 years ago. People have come to the United States, to different parts of the country for different reasons over different times, but kind of in groups. It often happens in sort of phases related to kind of economic issues or war, things like that. Many were Christian, many were Jewish, many were Muslim, many were none of the above. And what's important now is that many people who are outside of these communities who look at them think of them as being a Muslim community, right? And that's actually, it, it's it's. Depending on where you are, that could be a fairly even split. The Christian communities within Arab American like, areas of towns and whatnot are extraordinarily important. They have longer histories, in many cases, than Muslim communities who came more recently. And for some, that's a, that's a point of difficulty, right? There's, that is a line that becomes important within communities, especially in the world of music. But for many, that's not. That's not the important line, right? <laughs> and so in terms of like where in my research it comes up, almost in every conversation, this becomes something of a topic.
1: On the subject of music, can you talk about what some of the characteristics or markers of Arab-American music maybe were in the past, how that's evolving today, and getting into some of those maybe different musical traditions that your research is discussing?
0: Yeah, like um, kind of Western classical music, there are certain eras and certain musicians, certain innovators who are kind of remembered and held up as being esteemed and important. And in many cases both in America and elsewhere in the world those figures are people who come out of Lebanon Syria Egypt through this like golden age period of the middle of the 20th century right so you have figures like Umm Kulthum al-Lim Hafiz and um Abdul Wahab Fayrouz. these are the people whose songs if you mention them people either start singing or sigh and think ah oh, those were the days right like these are the 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 music the music and musicians who who bring about a sense of nostalgia not on like Frank Sinatra or Rosemary Clooney or something like that, right? It's this this sort of era, this period. And that music really built on this longer classical tradition that comes out of Baghdad, Damascus, Cairo, the greater Middle East, right? But there were a lot of innovations that happened at that point. And some of those innovations had to do with adapting to some European sounds that were becoming important. You really have a moment where People are reimagining what it means to be an Arab in the modern world. And in many cases, that involves bringing in sounds from opera and compositional techniques and musical mandolins and musical instruments that are directly borrowed from other places around the world. But in other cases, what people remember is more local, right? It's the stuff that they heard growing up in their town that their parents used to sing. And in some cases, their parents used to sing Fay who's a major pop artist. But in other cases, it would be some sort of local tradition that maintains its importance wedding music something like that and so when we talk about arab american music we're talking about kind of all of these things because so much of it is about memory and that's where a lot of my interests lie but one of the nice things about this project is that it is highly collaborative and many of the people who i'm working with are working with individuals who are making extraordinary innovations right so you have djs at underground clubs in toronto and um classical composers who are writing like string quartet, oud compositions, like fusing instruments and musical traditions. So it's a broad field. And that's one of the things I like about inviting so many people into this conversation, because it's, you know, the idea that this is something that I could or even would want to try to study by myself is ridiculous. And so many other people are doing some phenomenal work, but it's all dispersed.
1: You talked about memory and nostalgia. Could you talk a little bit more about the role music plays in developing and maintaining social ties within Arab American American communities?
0: Yeah, so when you read about the history of Arab American musical traditions, they really align with the history of Arab American sort of social life. And much of this goes along with church organizations and similar social organizations that are hosting gatherings right so you have like a hafla which is a sort of party or a celebration you have marajan, which is like a festival of some sort and you have some early examples of people making recordings and i have some examples i'm happy to share but then what ends up occurring is this starts to shift into circuits and so musicians are able to follow these circuits around the country they might be like an East Coast circuit, a Midwest circuit, a West circuit, a Southern circuit. You have other artists like Henan who's traveling like across Latin America and coming back and working with people globally. And many of these folks are becoming household names within the Arab American community in part because of the social life that surrounds these touring circuits. And because they're not going to like a venue where an event is organized by A nightclub or a bar or something at least at that at this sort of earlier point that is the social life right that is what people are going out to do together that's how they're gathering as a community and a lot of it is driven by for example the press there's an arab american press right they can't be overstated in importance and so you have this idea where music and social life are really fused together especially in terms of like large gatherings now one of the things i'm interested in is whether or not that's still the case or whether like major arts institutions are starting to fill that space and if so what does that mean or what does it say and i'm i'm still early in this i don't i don't know the answer to that yet or if there is a single answer right but what is it that is creating this fusion between social life and musical practice innovation identity and memory how are all these things coming together now and is that still similar has it just expanded or has it changed right in some other ways so, for example, you have artists like Alexander Malouf, who comes to New York City in the right in the very beginning, maybe the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and he's working in and around um, the 1920s and 30s. He actually is a, an arranger uh, and a composer and a pianist, so he arranges these works for piano that are these kind of... Hybrid ragtime Arab music fusion things, and many of them are written for amateur audiences. And he's actually one of these figures who he recorded for a major label at the at the time. Major record labels were um, many of them were releasing their own ethnic series, right? They were trying to target very specific audiences. You have kind of the beginning of this phase of the recording industry, and but he also started his own label, and so he ends up recording many others who are kind of coming in around the same time. So. There's examples like Fatima, which is on the album The Music of the Arab-Americans, which uh, was put together by Enris Rasmussen at The Musicologist, uh, who's been working quite a bit with the population for a couple decades. Another one, A Trip to Syria. You, you hear these like sort of march-like accompaniments, whether it's left hand in the piano or it's in like the bass part. And then you hear this, at this point, it sounds sort of Orientalist, take on Middle Eastern music, right? It, it lacks a lot of the intonational nuance that happens or the ornamentation and it becomes almost like the cartoon version of itself. But at the time what he was doing was he he was, he was intentionally trying to fuse these things together. At the same time, you had others like Nahum Simon or Naim Karakend, who who are singer a singer and a violinist, who are um, really reproducing a lot of the sounds that are coming out of Syria at the time, and that people remember from you know having recently moved to the United States, and they end up becoming prominent figures as you know professional musicians. Naim Karakand, the violinist, ends up you know some of his last recordings in the late 1950s are with Ahmed Abdul Malik, who played. Who's a, an oud player and a bassist who ended up playing with like John Coltrane and he was Thelonious Monk's bassist at the time and so you have these really interesting jazz fusion projects with Lee Morgan who's a really prominent jazz tr- uh, trumpet player performing on them these are things like Isma which means listen and when you when you hear this you hear an Arab American violinist who has become you know, a consummate professional studio musician, right? He played for everybody who's anybody within these circuits. But then at the same time, by the time his career is, you know, extended to this point, he's been able to expand into really dramatically different styles of music, bringing this sort of Arab American identity with him. And in this case, connecting with other Arab Americans, right, to create something that's intentionally new.
1: Could you talk a little bit about how this project has expanded and what your actual research project now looks like? What are these collaborations you're alluding to?
0: So when I originally started this project, it was before COVID, and it was a fairly focused effort to learn more about the Arab American community here in Toledo, right? I was in the early stages of collaborative project with Michael Ibrahim, who's the director of the um National Arab Orchestra based in Detroit, and uh, an oud player and composer himself, a night player. And we were going to do some work to learn more about the Archbishop Samuel David, who is a, a clergy a clergyman who, who chanted within a church here in Toledo. And there's kind of a political story and a musical story and a social story to tell about that. But then everything was postponed because of COVID. And I ended up able to do a decent amount of that work. And part of in part because this collaboration led to a lot of the connections that normally take years to to make. So then when things restarted, I was considering, you know, some different options of where to take this, this time, this opportunity. And what I wanted to do was instead of foregrounding some idea of like representing others, which is when you work in Morocco, like there's an element of translation, there's cultural context that you need to really flesh out. And so that makes a little more sense. But in this context, uh, the people I, w- I was working with, they all told their stories all the time. They had reasons for telling the stories the way they did. But what they lacked was the space to reach the kinds of voices that I wanted to reach, which selfishly, as a you know, teaching faculty member, uh, is the classroom, right? So often we have textbooks that are that are not primary focused on primary sources, right? And so I reached out to a handful of scholars who I knew were doing, research on this region, Arab American music, in very different communities and in very different contexts, often as like side projects to their main, their main work. And I wanted to ask them if they would be interested in doing something where instead of like just sharing a piece of scholarship, sitting down and having a conversation with somebody who they work with, right? Giving that person an opportunity to tell their story, um, to lead the conversation in a direction that they deem important. And when I reached out to a handful of people, everybody wrote back and was very interested and then, you know, told me about other people who were very interested and then that turned into other people. And so what was going to be like a roundtable turned into a day, which turned into like two days. And then we ended up just I ended up just deciding to make it an asynchronous like digital humanities oriented recording project just out of sheer wanting to prevent everybody from having to sit on Zoom for like a week for a conference. Yeah, (laughs) because we've all done a lot of that. And so at this point, yeah, that's, that's where it's heading. There's going to be a shorter podcast series, hopefully. And then also I've, this has led to a number of conversations with other co-editors to put together at least one, but possibly other book projects to lead this toward a series of conversations. You talked about sustainability in the beginning, really trying to find a way to, trying to bring people together in a conversation that's specific, but expansive in a way that it can continue. And it can include all of these other voices. It's not just you know, scholars sitting in a room, um, but it can be led by members of the community.
1: You're talking about collaboration, which is one of our favorite words um, at ICS. So, um, you know, and you've identified that, like, you wanted these people to get to speak for themselves, but could you talk a little bit about your intention of having these sort of dialogues between a scholar and the community? What were you trying to get at by not just having a series of standalone interviews of some kind with each separately, but really bringing them together.
0: Well, I think this has actually driven people a little bit crazy because I'm going out of my way to not over-determine what these things look like. And that's in the case of a recording, but that's also in the case of a potential book project, right? What I would love to see is scholars and community members. And in many cases, that line itself is really blurry, right? Many of the community members are scholars or scholars are members of the community. But I want it to be something that's bounded enough so that people have an idea of what the expectation is, but really no more than that, because it would be amazing to see some very different types of contributions come back. I was having a conversation with one potential contributor based in Chicago. And, you know, he's trying to decide between he and I basically sit down and have a conversation and do an interview, or he's a music producer, right? So maybe he puts together a sort of lab like discussion of some things that he's been thinking about himself. Some of these figures are, are DJs, so maybe the music will play a very different role within their contributions than others. And in the case of uh, the written word, like future um, volumes and things like that, I would love to see a mix of transcribed interviews and different conversations that are woven together and contextualized by somebody who's involved in it or other sorts that I don't necessarily see coming. So in terms of the collaboration and, and determining what things are going to look like, I'm yeah, I'm really trying to go out of my way to let the people who are participating, the contributors, determine not only what's important and therefore what should be talked about, but what the best way it is to present that, to tell that story.
1: We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast.
0: Question. Answer. Discussion. If you are passionate about Big Ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu
1: hello and welcome back to the big ideas podcast today I'm speaking with Dr. Chris Witolsky about his research on the way music makes meaning in Arab American communities we've been talking about music and Arab American community could you tell us a little bit about how music performance listening and cultural memory might help or demonstrate some conflicting values within Arab American immigrant communities so you've talked about sort of some of those divides and connecting points whether that's religious or geographic but how do you hear that in the
0: music. Well, let me stick with just some history and some of the examples, right? So I started earlier by talking about some of these earlier musicians who were innovating in different ways, trying to determine what does it mean to be an Arab American? How far do you have to move in one direction to the other before you lose something of the other? And that distinction of what's important and how you celebrate it and remember it recognize it and perform it that's a, a very much an open and a very personal question but it's not only a personal question it's also a communal question right there are like values social values and stigmas that get put on different communities and whatnot for example as we record this the National Arab American Museum is putting on a, an event called Juma which uh, means to gather and it's uh, featuring you know hip-hop artists from Palestine and groups from Detroit and things like this like a whole wide range of Arab American music that has that that stands either outside of or at least quite far from some of the things that were going on in Egypt in 1950 for example and that's not a recent phenomenon right even when you go back to like you know to talk about a few more examples when you go back and you talk about like the 1950s and 60s you start to see Arab American musicians some of whom were quite famous and well-known George Abdo and Eddie Kozak, like people who um who were not necessarily immigrants themselves right they come from Im- immigrant communities but they're American born and many of their audiences are American born right so how do you make that determination of what gets to count when people's tastes are changing so dramatically? This is actually something that I was really interested in when I was working in Morocco, like conceptually, this idea of authenticity and appropriateness being determined as like within that relationship between expectations from performer and audience member, right? So if you're able to perform something that sounds a little bit like rock and roll, that might hit home for an audience. That's a different audience than some of the other examples that I played earlier. And that's still true today. So, for example, you know, Eddie Kochik is one of these figures. He was called the Sheikh, right? And he had a couple kind of big hits. He's somewhat well-known. And he um, ends up performing kind of this nightclub scene that starts to develop after this Marhajan and Hafla scene. And this ends up getting tied to kind of the rise of belly dance styles and things like this. And uh, you have a very different community whether it's people who are Arab-Americans who are attracted to this for different reasons or people who are, you know, white Americans or or whatever. And this is just an interesting musical style in the 60s and, and later. You know, he has a recording of Mr. Lou, which was made famous by Dick Dale, whose own family members were of Lebanese descent and whose guitar playing style is based on some like Middle Eastern ode playing style, the way he uses his pick and that that sort of surf guitar sound kind of derives from this idea. And so if you listen to something like that, you hear this is drawing from an old Turkish folk song and it ends up becoming really popular because of the oddities of, you know, the American music industry, right? You also have people like George Abdo, who the generation later goes even further and you end up with almost like this big band sounding Arab music belly dance thing that's going on. And again, it's it's, it's, it's fun music, but it's not always accepted into the community as a whole. Right. So many people look at belly dance and they see this as one thing and other people look at it and they see it as something completely different. So those kind of conflicts are pretty straightforward, but there are many others that are more nuanced about like what is appropriate, what is inappropriate, what is remembering, what is misremembering, right? What is nostalgia, what is inappropriate nostalgia that is, you know, the hindsight, you know, sort of rose colored glasses kind of thing, right? There's a lot of that going on.
1: You've talked already about your research process and wanting to give voice to the members of the community themselves. We think of that in relationship to the idea of cultural advocacy as a research practice that wants to take into account subjects' own culture identity and historical marginalization or oppression or whatever that context is. So could you talk more about how you see or practice cultural advocacy in your work?
0: The main thing that I'm doing right now is I'm I'm almost looking at my my research efforts as being service efforts. So there's this project where I will make a few contributions and the things that I'm really curious about are these these questions of like memory and institutions and social life and how these things come together. And I'll weave together some of these conversations to create contributions out of maybe two or three different interviews, maybe more, right? But my other the other big thing that I'm really working on right now is a, it's called the World Music Textbook and I'm a co-editor with two others from other two other institutions. And we are putting together like an open access journal-ish kind of textbook sort of thing, where pieces of writing are peer-reviewed and judged based on their applicability for the undergraduate classroom or the general audience, as opposed to kind of a scholarly journal in that sense. So it still holds kind of scholarly heft and gives value in that way. But it is open and it's all open. And for example, that project is shifting this idea of like what an editor is. Right So, like we're the three editors, but really, instead of sending things out to having them reviewed and then come back to us, we're doing a lot of the editing and commenting and working with authors who are not necessarily scholars working in universities, but might be musicians who are asking interesting questions but don't necessarily know of the scholarship to address to connect those questions to or people who are from other parts of the world where sort of the entire American system and European system of like academic publishing is is literally foreign, right and and largely unknown. And so it turns into kind of a service obligation in some ways. And it's interesting that way because you work with some people who are who are thinking about a lot of the same questions as ethnomusicologists and music historians and music theorists and anthropologists and dance scholars and whatnot. But they're coming from, in many cases, more personal experience and they want to lead with that. And so I think this is a similar idea, right? How can we lead With the experiences of people who have stories to share and stories that can really tell and teach in terms of, you know, my position in ethnomusicology, I think one of the most potent spots to catalyze advocacy is in the classroom, right? And so presenting, providing these these stronger materials and these stories and whatnot and giving space to those voices in a classroom where they're normally excluded, that's been kind of a core of what I'm trying to do.
1: What advice would you give to other researchers or young people about how to make sure you're amplifying the voices of the people you're studying without speaking over or speaking for them?
0: So the main thing is make sure you're asking them what's important. Like that's it makes for a hard interview when you walk in and you say, So what do you want to talk about? <laughs> but that that does happen a decent amount. And it's something that um it's a lesson that I heard that learned the hard way when I was doing my own fieldwork in Morocco. I spent about three years in Morocco and i kept on having these questions that i thought were really interesting but people didn't have good answers for them and i was like you don't have a good answer for my question and it got really frustrating right like how to like i'm not going to be able to get to this because people aren't talking about music this way and it's because that just didn't matter right and, so, and then eventually it was like okay so these questions that i that i want to ask they're interesting questions to me they don't they don't necessarily matter that doesn't make them bad questions it just means that My question is, why don't those things matter, right? And then what does? And so it kind of redirects you uh, in different ways. But yeah, that and a lot of patience and interesting conversations.
1: Chris, as you continue working with members of the Arab-American community or communities, how do you think the project is going to grow from here? What are some of the next steps for your research on music in Arab-American communities?
0: Well, so the main first step here is to create a nice resource of recordings that are helpful materials both in the classroom, selfishly, but then also for the community itself. I really think that one of the outgrowths of this that's going to end up being most significant is actually just starting bringing all these folks into single conversations. This would obviously work better if there were events where people were gathering and like having conversations. But the way it's working out also means that a number of people who wouldn't be able to attend such an event are able to be a part of this conversation, right? Now, future conversations will probably... Who knows what they will look like, right? But the the way that this is going to move forward, I think, will be through momentum. As I mentioned before, there are a number of people who work with Arab music as their sort of point of scholarship. And then they live somewhere in America, and there's a, a community that they're interested in and that they know people who who, who live there and work there and play this music and love this music and it's not just musicians right any you know music is important to people who aren't musicians too and so we have a lot of non-musicians who are involved in the project and so i foresee this moving forward in a way that builds a certain sense of momentum and just kind of expands some of those lines like arab america is is a line that probably won't stay around this project right that'll it'll change into a broader um like swana southwest um Asian and North African-oriented diaspora type of project. It might be about North America. It might be about America. It might be about the Americas, right? There's a lot of interesting work going on in Latin America, across Europe. And a lot of the issues that these communities are running into are similar. They're obviously contextually different. But the conversations that stretch across this diaspora, there's going to be some really interesting shared content just because of kind of the globalized nature of communications and everything. And, and we don't know where that's going to roll, where the momentum, that inertia is going to kind of take it.
1: One of the things I love about your project, Chris, is you are, in fact, helping create new Arab-American communities through the new networks that are being created. That, Like, obviously, you're tapping into some really powerful existing networks, but you're also bringing together folks who probably aren't familiar with all of the other folks um, you're working on. And that seems like something important and exciting about this work as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's funny being like the white dude, but— that's part of the reason why it's a matter of like trying to like I have so much privilege in this particular position having the time and the energy and the the focus this you know the ICS support to be able to do this kind of work and really a lot of the work is just reaching out to people and trying to put them in touch and hope that that leads to interesting stuff right not over determining what's happening and and we'll we'll see hopefully that will work out well
1: Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Listeners can keep up with other ICS happenings by following us on Twitter and Instagram at ICSBGSU and on our Facebook page. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. For more information, visit bgsu.edu forward slash bgideas. Our producers are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza with sound editing by Alexander Schweitzer and Marco Mendoza. Research assistance was provided by Abby Walters with editing by Joanna Simpson and Carrie Hanlon. This conversation was recorded in the Stanton Audio Recording Studio in the Michael and Sarah Colleen Center at Bowling Green State University.